if if the president were to all of a sudden revert back to some of that behavior uh, as president, the evangelical support will not be there for him. Yeah. Um, so it's basically we we kind of gave him all right. You, you you get a mulligan. You get a, you get a do over here. You you can start <laughs> a mulligan for seventy years of his life. <laughs> Trump and Daniels invited her to their hotel room. Uh, the White House has said that this was an allegation which was talked about prior to the election that was shot down. I think from a, a human being standpoint, from a spiritual being standpoint, he's maturing as well. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the consort of Stormy Daniels, whose wife is standing up to him by not going with him to hang out with the globalist cucks at Davos. It just this kind of breaks my heart. You know, Trumpcast listeners know that the marriage of the Trumps represents a kind of Camelot to me. It's like a fairy tale. Him with that very, very vertical slimming line of that crimson tie, his incredible jeans, his flaxen hair catching the sun, like one of the more unconventionally shapen elves of Rivendell. And her, Melania Knauss Trump, those happy eyes, that bright, joyful radiance, and her wit and open, merry laugh. And their marriage seemed so... Well, there was that time when Melania didn't look murderously, cellularly imploding with horror at the sight of him. And of course... Seeing Trump never, ever roughhousing with or even noticing Barron, well, just that family, their refinement and sense of fun and just love, really. I'm just so heartbroken about Trump's apparent relationship with an adult film star. You never can judge a marriage from the outside, I guess. Who would have thought? But we're not talking about extramarital or intramarital anything today. Instead, we're talking to the Atlantic columnist David Frum about his new book, Trumpocracy, and what Trump's rise means for Republicans and the Republic and the past and the present and the future of our nation. Damn, that's a tall order. And one possibly only David Frum could pull off. We'll be back with David in just a minute. But first... Trump has threatened many, many populations, including that special interest group known as humankind, on his way to and through the presidency. But only recently has he set his sights on a maritime genocide. His latest enemy? Sharks. Hello, I'm Linda Donovan for HelpSharks.net. We're a charity that helps sharks. Gregory is a 26-year-old shark from the Pacific Ocean who has fallen on hard times. I I don't think it's easy for sharks right now. I I don't think I'm alone. I've talked with a lot of my friends who are still trying to get back on their fins after the shark recession. Gregory needs your support now more than ever. I read the the In Touch article and I just, I couldn't believe it. I don't care if a grown man wants to have an affair with a porn star. I'm a shark, that doesn't affect me. But I was sickened by Mr. Trump's comments about sharks. I mean, he said he would never donate to a charity that helps sharks. He he said he hopes all sharks die. It's just so revealing that he would write off an entire species. Helpsharks.net provides not just funds, but also counseling for sharks like Gregory who have been victimized by the president's remarks. I'm depressed. I mean, yes, I, I can smell a drop of blood in water a mile away, but, but honestly, these days I'm not even motivated to go chase it. I, 
I feel like I'm not moving forward in life. And if I don't move forward, I'll die. That's just a fact. Visit helpsharks.net today and make a donation to help sharks everywhere. Honestly, I'm not the kind of shark who fantasizes about eating people. They're just not very good in general. Most sharks don't like them. But I would love to bite Trump. What an asshole. It's a Hard Shark Life was written and performed by Kate James and Steve Waltine. We'll be right back. Joining me on the line is David Frum. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he's just published his ninth book, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. Welcome, David. What a pleasure to be here. So as you know, I managed to catch a copy of Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic, your new book, almost as soon as it rolled off the presses in an advanced reader's edition. And one of the... um, one of the main things and sort of what becomes the occasion for this book was this sort of reminder that Jeb Bush was once expected to be not just the candidate, but a candidate with a very good chance of winning. And when you take the measure of what's happened to the Republican Party since the election of Donald Trump, you begin by by drawing our attention to Jeb Bush. Maybe you can uh, walk our listeners through what it was like during the, the the primary campaigns, when a lot of donors thought Jeb Bush would be the front front runner, well, you'll remember that through much of the second Obama term, Jeb Bush consistently led polls among Republicans mm-hmm. as to who the next nominee of the party would be. Um, he raised a sum of money just vast beyond calculation. I mean, I think almost one hundred and twenty million dollars in both uh, direct money and then indirect through these new kinds of uh, super PACs that, that have sprung up. He was where all the talkers told the Republican Party it had to go. The famous autopsy that was written for the Republican National Committee after the 2012 election, it was basically a help wanted ad to which Jeb Bush was the answer. And the message of the party was changed. Nothing of Romney's message except the thing that the rich people had never liked anyway, which was that Romney had taken some steps to a more cautious position on immigration, jettisoned that, um, full-throated embrace of immigration, and then otherwise, you're good to go. Roll back Medicare from everybody now under 55, uh, giant tax cuts, that Change nothing except that one thing. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be build a bridge to Mexico, build a, uh, build a channel, channel train. Right. And yeah, right. I mean that is that's extraordinary. And what was the reasoning? It's just hard to remember now what the reasoning was for loosening up the Romney position. They didn't reason at all. Um, that they were doing what they wanted to do. The Republican base was frantically signaling that what they wanted was more health care, less immigration, and no more Bushes. And the party elite wrote a check for $120 million based on the assumption that what they really meant by that was less health care, more immigration, and one more Bush. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have been pounding the drum, gosh, since 2007, that the pre-Great Recession message of the Republican Party was not apt for a post-Great Recession world. You know, one of the things to give Trump his due um, he had a keen intuition for where the country was, or at least where the Republican part of the country was. He talked in 2015 about opioids. Nobody else did. Um, he understood that trade and immigration were difficult questions. Nobody else did. He offered to defend Medicare and Medicaid. It's not clear he knew the difference between those two programs, but he was defending them both. And he emphasized that any tax changes that were going to come were going to benefit the middle class. Now, he didn't 
tell the truth about any of these things. Maybe he didn't understand them well enough to be consciously deceptive, but he broke through this kind of ice freeze that the party had been in and broke all the institutions of the party, including, by the way, the veto of Fox News. Fox News began very hostile to Trump, and he bent them to his will. So speaking of him as a, as a bully, that has been an appealing part of his profile for the, you know, confounding to many of us religious right. You know, what do you think of that? I, it's I've heard it described as the Cyrus defense of him, that he is like a pagan figure, Cyrus, that was a friend of the Jews, even if entirely pagan, you know, with pagan appetites, but that helped the Jews. And that there are all, are these figures that are irreligious figures who serve as steamrollers for a Christian agenda. Does that ring true to you? Not a bit. Um, the Romans built the Colosseum and filled it twice a week for close to 400 years. Uh, by inviting people to watch men and beasts hack each other to death. We enjoy cruelty, or many of us do, and it's exciting. Cruelty also has a function, uh, which is it reasserts. The the reason the Romans watched these things was they reasserted a vision of how the world was and how it should be. What Trump offers the people who like him is it would be hard to imagine a less godly human being. And not just in the sense of, you know, being uh, conventionally virtuous, being a good husband, a good father, he's another of those things. But he's not a godly human being and that he obviously has no spiritual dimension at all. Yeah. He is entirely a creature of appetite and appetite in its crudest and grossest form. Yeah. In fact, one of the things, I mean, you read his a description of him eating and you think, that's it. I just, I want to live on, you know, elderflower tea for the rest of my life. That's, <laughs> yep. I, I don't want to be an animal like that. You know, his, his slovenliness, his sloth, his, it's, it's repellent. I mean, it just binds us more closely to our animal nature and moves us as, as there's no president who's been as far from the divine. Even Abra, I mean, Abraham Lincoln was probably the nearest thing that the United States ever had to a non-believing president. I mean, it was a person who thought all the time about the human spirit. I have to say, as, as someone who, thinks a lot about these things um, and does regard himself as, as a believer. Um, the, the idea that, a relig- that there's any kind of religious justification for this, there is no justification for cruelty. And even Cyrus in the both Jewish myth and Persian and Greek was a man of uncommon virtue. He was honest. He was an, an admirable figure, regardless of whether or not you shared his view. And he wasn't a pagan, by the way. He also was a believer in a quasi-monotheistic religious system, from which, by the way, Christians and Jews get such concepts as, as angels. Uh, that was a Persian invention. So one part of the book that I that I found extremely moving, and I, I don't think I read the first time, um, it was an answer to the question of, sh- should one go to work for Trump? Mm-hmm. And um, this was Elliot Cohen's question. And what, tell me, maybe reprise or even read if you have the book in front of you what you said to Elliot well, I'm a bad Cohen. author I don't actually have a copy of the book okay all right me, but I th- you know what I, but, but I think I can reprise it yes okay but if you'd like to read it you, you, you uh, feel free well you can see I, I like chomping at the bit to do it you're obviously you're a, a beautiful speechwriter, and so who doesn't want to give this a shot all right so I'll try it should one go to work for Trump Good people can do the right thing even under pressure, but be aware the pressure to do the wrong thing can be intense. And the closer one approaches to the center of presidential power and prestige, the more intense the pressure becomes. It's easy to imagine you'd emulate Walters. This is the IRS director who refused to release political opponents' tax returns to the Nixon White House. It's easy to imagine you'd be Walters um, when reading the book he wrote four decades after the fact. But in the moment, in the Oval Office, face-to-face with the President of the United States? So maybe the very first thing to consider, if the invitation comes, is this. 
How well do you know yourself? How sure are you that you would indeed say no? And then humbly consider the second troubling question. If the Trump administration were as convinced as you are that you'd do the right thing, would they have asked you in the first place? You wrote that January 2017. I mean, who made this bet and went in that has managed to do the right thing? Well, there are people um, who have done right things, especially those who are not in the White House, who are at some distance. And James Mattis is obviously the um, embodiment of that. And one of the things that is remarkable at Mattis is how he's maintained his own personal moral compass. At that kind of Stalinist session where all the cabinet secretaries groveled to Trump. Yeah, the Mattis dear leader the session, who, yeah. The dear leader session. Mattis was the one who did not. And Mattis, Mattis was caught on video in Jordan expressing the most candid statement of why he was in the administration. It's really quite beautiful. I invite people to tune into it. It's quite short. You just, you just hold the line, my fine young soldiers, sailors, airmen. Oh, oh, just hold the line until our country gets back to understanding and respecting each other and showing it, uh, being friendly to one another, you know, that Americans owe to one another. We're so doggone lucky to be Americans. We, got we will, he promised, get back to being ourselves again, to being good to one another, respectful to one another, kind to one another. And it's beautiful. And, and thank God he's there. But understand, he's across the river. People who are closer like H.R. McMaster, who's also an honorable soldier, have been crushed. Yeah, where do you, I mean, I can, you can see that in John Kelly, but where do you see that in McMaster? Because he's a little bit of a cipher. You know, originally, I think some people, including my colleague Jacob Weisberg, predicted or, or perceived a kind of detente among the generals. But McMaster around the Comey firing was, seemed a bit dishonorable. And I don't know where you see his having. Well, I tell a story in the book. Broken. That sort of sums up where, where he is. So McMaster is um, was a hero in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's the author of a, of a well-received and much much praised, deservedly so, book on civil military relations in the Vietnam War. And he's a traditionalist in his foreign policy. When, when he replaced Michael Flynn, he made an early decision that he was going to reaffirm America's commitment to NATO in Article 5. Article 5 is the mutual defense guarantee in NATO, the core of the treaty. A trip was scheduled in April of 2017 to NATO headquarters. At NATO headquarters, there is a new monument to Article 5, a twisted girder from the World Trade Center. Donald Trump was to stand in front of this girder and read a speech about NATO, which praised NATO and included a reaffirmation explicitly of America's commitment to Article 5. Uh, McMaster, just to be sure, wrote the relevant paragraph himself and briefed journalists on the plane on the way over that this was the paragraph that was going to be read Mm -hmm. and the president would solemnly recommit. Except when Donald Trump got to the paragraph, whether because he doesn't like to be told what to do, whether because he hates NATO, whether because he's got some pressure on him from Moscow or someplace else, he omitted that passage. On the, the reporters naturally asked McMaster, what happened? You told us the president was going to say this thing. You showed us the language that he was going to say. He didn't say it. And McMaster said the first, well, the previous briefings had been on background. This was on the record. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Trump said everything we expected him to say. I don't know how you can read what he said as anything other than a solemn commitment to NATO. This is just – he didn't use the phrase fake news, but that's sort of what he said. Like that, that's when I think of good people doing bad things for good reasons. That's an example because – Look, it would have been terrible if, if the national security advisor said, well, look, we, we tried to get the president to say he would defend our allies, but he just wouldn't. I'm so sorry, allies. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? You don't want to say that. Like, too bad, Estonia, sorry, I, we did our best to yeah. honor NATO. He just won't do it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there'd be panic. It'd be, it'd right. be like the president going on, on the air and saying, everybody sell your stocks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, then you get Rex Tillerson or whoever probably back-channeling to our allies saying... You see, I, for some reason, I picture them making that like circle around their ear, like he's insane. Just ignore him. You know, the maddest thing of like, we'll get that under control, and for now, let's keep business as usual out here. But you're right, which, which is fine if you're if you're France or Germany, that's fine. Yeah, but if you're Estonia or Poland or Bulgaria, you have to think. Yeah, but the guy who's going to sign the order is the guy who is insane. And and much as we like Jim Mattis, in the end, it's not his decision. So two things there. Do you think, because I think you understand the military mind better than most, is do you think, you know, there was speculation around Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson, the presidential physician, that he may have been in his, the many superlatives he used in describing Trump's health. He had a quite Trumpist language to say what Mm -hmm. great and incredibly great and God-given great genes the president had uh, in talking that way that he was a military man answering to his commander in chief. And is it possible that H.R. McMaster just thinks in military hierarchy that, you know, when the president does it this way, that's how what he does? Possibly. McMaster's famous book, though, was all about how the generals in Vietnam had betrayed the country by not speaking truth to their civilian superiors. So if McMaster has been brought round to this point of view, it is a warning of this corrupting influence. I mean, that was how why McMaster was so famous, was he had written the book saying, don't do this thing that I'm now about to do. So you used the word corruption, and you just used it again, but you used it in the subtitle to the book, The Corruption of the American Republic. So corruption seems either complementary to or a step away from the concept of collusion, the the, na- the national security breach that we had in the form of, of Russian interference. Um, corruption's not, strictly speaking, something that, say, Robert Mueller's looking into, but it is something that seems apparent. What do you, what do you mean by corruption? And what do you mean by corruption? Well, corruption was a concept that obsessed the founders of the American Republic, has obsessed small-R Republicans through the history of Republican theory. And it doesn't, as the phrase financial corruption reminds us, which we, we that's the kind of corruption we typically think of, mm-hmm. um, that was not the only kind of corruption that the founders of the Republic worried about. And so the play on words in the subtitle is very deliberate because to, to corrupt something means to make it basically fall away from its pure state. Mm-hmm. And we speak of, a ro- of, of rotting meat as corrupt. Mm-hmm. No money's changing hands inside that meat, but it is it is it is decaying from its true and pure state. Yeah. So where corruption has to do with collusion is that even if we don't learn any more about it than what we know already, the risk that an American president would be manipulated by foreign powers mm-hmm. was an obsession with the authors of the Constitution. In James mm-hmm. Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, in the discussions of impeachment, that the word the concern there that um, motivates them above all. The thing to which impeachment is the purest answer is the problem of corrupt of subornation of the chief executive by foreign powers. They twice cite in the debates the example of Charles II, who was king of England in the time of the grandfathers and great-grandfathers of the authors of the Constitution. And Charles II had accepted a subsidy from Louis XIV and the king of France, and in return for which he had fallen in line with French policy. He had stood aside as the the French had attacked Mm -hmm. England's ally and partner, the Netherlands, 
uh, the kingdom um, uh, would Holland, and he had even allowed the French to take over English bases on the mainland of Europe, all paid for by this subsidy. He was the paradigm case of what they were worried about. So that is corruption. It's both financial corruption, but it's also an example of the body politic rotting like a piece of diseased meat. That's, I mean, Jacob Weisberg has has said the thing that Watergate uncovered was not so much a conspiracy as a kind of rot at the core of the Republican Party. I don't know if you would go that far about Watergate, but what do you think, as far as the party goes, do you think the Republican Party is irreparably rotten? Is Can this much corruption be undone? or do you, And do you think this maybe this corruption runs through all of American politics right now? I think what we face now is much more serious than Watergate. And let, let me explain why. And some of this may be run counter to some of the things that some listeners to this podcast may think. American presidents from Franklin Delano Roosevelt on, in fact, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had started this, had eavesdropped upon potential political opponents. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did it because his political opponents were, he correctly feared, in cahoots with America's foreign enemies. He was worried about Charles Lindbergh. He was worried especially about Charles Lindbergh. And so he would authorize listening expeditions to find out what what is the nature of the relationship between Charles Lindbergh and Nazi Germany. He got a medal from Nazi Germany. His wife wrote a book uh, condoning and apologizing and excusing the Nazi invasion of France. Uh, There's a lot to worry about. The legacy that uh, Roosevelt left behind was used by some of his successors. Not so much Truman and not so much Eisenhower, but very much John F. Kennedy, very much Lyndon Johnson. So what Nixon was doing was extending and elaborating. And Nixon had been a a target and a victim of some of these things, as had had Barry Goldwater in 1964. What Nixon did was he, he took what Johnson and Roosevelt and others had done, and he expanded it more aggressively. And then he got caught at a time when the rules were changing. There was very little about Watergate that had never been seen before. What Trump did with Russia has never been seen before. Mm. It, for an American president, I mean, I, I look, American presidents obviously have had contact with people abroad. I mean, it was no secret in 2012 that Benjamin Netanyahu preferred Romney to Obama. And it was no secret in 2004 that Gerhard Schroeder and Jacques Chirac would be very happy to see the back of George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots, lots of allies have had opinions, but they've been allies and they've worked in an open way. As I said, we all know what Netanyahu thought about Obama. We all know what um, uh, Chirac and Schroeder thought of W. Bush. Uh, mm-hmm. They made no secret of it, and they didn't use clandestine means. For a geopolitical opponent to use clandestine means in an American election and for an American political campaign to cooperate and welcome it um, and maybe very possibly do more than cooperate and welcome, uh, this is truly unheard of in a way that the crime, the genuine crimes of Watergate were simply extensions and exaggerations of previous problems in the American political system. But where we are now is new. And if you think, fear, as I do, that abuse breeds on abuse, just think if Trump is succeeds, what has he opened the door to? Before we go, I have to I have to ask for some hope from you, David. What do you have any ideas of types of legislation that could be introduced to strengthen the democratic norms that have been tested by this administration? Some things are, are pretty, are, are, are things I think we need. I think we, um, it must cease to be voluntary that major party candidates or president disclose their tax returns, the, the secretary of the treasury. On the day that you receive the secret service protection, the mm-hmm. secretary of the treasury should release a, certain, you know, a, a statutorily specified number of tax returns. I, I, I don't know how many, but 
That, that should happen with the Secret Service protection. I think we need more financial disclosure about the activities of people in the first degree of fam- family connection to mm-hmm. a president, um, spouses, children, parents, siblings too, because that's any place where someone is plausibly going to park bribes. I think we need I'm going to say in-laws. I'm going to say sons-in-laws. Just, I don't know, yeah. just to be sure we yeah. don't <laughs> overlook them. I don't, right. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I like very much the Van Hole and Rubio Oh, I'm yeah. not sure. I haven't studied it carefully. That that would have compulsory sanctions against foreign parties deemed to have interfered in American elections, and they're very specifically tailored. I think those things will help. I end the book with hope, and it's not a tack on because one of the things I think we've also seen as Washington has darkened under Trump, there's been brightening and shafts of light all over the rest of the country, and I, I think these these women's marches demonstrate the level. Not only the thing that is so inspiring about them is not just the level of civil engagement. But how orderly they are. These are – Trump tries to goad his opponents into putting themselves outside the American mainstream. Mm-hmm. I, I mean I just find it – when he does this thing with the NFL, I find it I – just, I, just, I just want to rip that American lapel pin from his <laughs> – you, you don't – you're a creature of foreign actors. You right now are receiving millions of undisclosed dollars in payments from your business partners in the Philippines and Turkey and India and the United Arab Emirates. And I mean the guy who si- the guy from the Philippines who signs your monthly check is the Filipino ambassador to the United States. Take the blinking flag off, you don't deserve to wear it. And I think a lot of the attitude of patriotism in a sense the country is ours not yours. We are not going to imitate uh, the Vietnam protesters. We are going to speak as the real Americans to this alien presence in our system. I, I, yeah. I think that is exciting. Um, thanks very, very much for being here, David. It's always so good to hear your voice and read your book, Trumpocracy. It's fantastic. The Corruption of the American Republic. Thanks again. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by the peerless Jason DeLeon. On Twitter, our handle is at RealTrumpCast. You should follow us. I said I wouldn't guilt you, but I'm going to. You follow other podcasts, so follow ours at RealTrumpCast on Twitter. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.